0: I think we've done the hardest bit, I think, not just in the day after lunch, but also in the, in the book. I mean, there's plenty of weird stuff still to come, but I think, I think it, it's a bit like downhill from here, which I, I hope is, is good. Um, let me summarise the seven visions we're about to start reading, and then we're going to read a chunk of it, uh, a chunk of them, um, and try and make some sense of it as well. What's going on there? Pressing the wrong button, that's it. Okay, so we've had 11 chapters of build-up, covering the first day or so of this conference, I suppose. And then then finally, the seventh trumpet sounds, and the heavenly visions proper begin. And so we have this, then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And in many ways, that summarises the content of the second half of the book, and is echoed by the song of praise, which comes from the 24 elders. So we've got this sort of statement that the time has come for rewarding your slaves, which is a major theme in the book, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth, which, by the way, my friend back there next to Joey, if you were looking for an environmentally friendly text, the sense that God is going to destroy the destroyers of the earth is a fascinating comment. Genuinely. Like, I don't mean you have to be David Attenborough. I just think it's quite an interesting comment that there is a, a stewardship, a God's passion for the world and I know it's not just the earth in this, I know the word earth now would sound more eco than the word would have sounded in Greek, but I think the sense of the destroyers of the land or the destroyers of the earth is a significant target. I think God sees many people as not just harming people, but as destroying the world that he's made. Um, and then that, that time has come for rewarding your servants and destroying the destroyers, looks forward to the overthrow of the beasts, of Babylon, of Satan, but it also draws on the rainbow covered it with Noah. Um, Particularly that wonderful wordplay on destroy in Genesis Genesis chapter six, where you end up, you know, the whole earth was full of abomination or destruction and violence, and therefore God says, "I'm going to destroy." But the, you often, in English translations, it's often obscured. But it's the same verb, at root behind our, both of those words, that there is the earth is has become filled with violence, and therefore God is going to overthrow it. Um, and you see the, effectively the same word at work in both. Then at the end of chapter eleven. God's temple in heaven, is fine. temple in heaven, temple in heaven temple, that's not the best grammar, is it, is open to reveal the Ark of the Covenant, accompanied by various signs of theophany, the classics, you know, lightning, thunder, hail, earthquake, etc. So the Feast of Trumpets has culminated in the Day of Atonement, um, where the most holy place is opened. And so there is a, again, a Jewish liturgical, festal feel to the end of chapter 11. We've now had the Feast of Trumpets, and now the tabernacle or the temple is open and we can see the Ark of Covenant on full display. And then the next four chapters say what God, what John actually saw in those heavenly visions and I would say, although it doesn't explicitly say this, I would say this is the contents of the scroll in the sense that John is told, eat this, prepare to preach it and then as he begins to speak, he then gives these seven visions. I think it's implicit that the scroll, the contents of the scroll are the seven visions although admittedly it's never actually stated. Um, And I think they answer the question that I would have had if I was... And somebody asked this question earlier about the seventh trumpet. Was that you? About the seventh trumpet, like when? That sort of question of, are we really saying that that's all happening there and then? I think in some ways that's exactly the question we're supposed to ask when we've read Revelation 11, 17 and 18. You've taken up your power and begun to reign. The nation raged, but your wrath came. And the time has now come for you to reward your servants and destroy the destroyers of the earth. To which John would say, and so would we, seriously? Where? And in some ways, that's exactly the question that the, that the visions that follow are intended to answer. The way in which the Lord God Almighty has taken up his power and begun to reign is now going to be mapped out in the seven visions. And the seven visions, I think, are demarcated as follows. And a great sign appeared in heaven, 12.1. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. I looked and I saw the lamb with 144,000. I saw another angel flying overhead with an internal gospel, the three messages. I looked on a white cloud, seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown and a sickle. And then I saw another high sign in heaven, great and amazing, the seven angels with the seven bowls. So I think, effectively, the seven visions there are each one introduced with, and then I saw this, and then I saw that, and then I saw that. So although it never says there were seven visions and here they're ended, I think there are seven and they're meant to be marked in that way. But let's read from Revelation 12. The woman and the dragon. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they've conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives, even unto death. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he, that is the dragon, stood on the sand of the sea. And that kind of passage, if it weren't in the middle of a book like this, which we've been interpreting for a day or so, would be pretty weird as well like if you you get up and say you just somebody comes to the microphone on a Sunday meeting and reads that and then goes and sits down that's going to cause some fluttering in the dovecots I suspect in most of our churches maybe not Kings London because we've literally just preached it but it would be very odd in many of our settings and the symbolism is very dramatic and graphic but I actually think it's a much simpler sort of passage than the previous four chapters we've been reading I think it requires less work to figure out what's going on because the symbols are actually pretty clear A woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars, pregnant and crying out in birth pains. The only slight wrinkle there is that some people will say a woman who's going to give birth to the Messiah must be Mary. And I don't think it is at all. I think it's, well, except insofar far as Mary is Israel as well. But this is is really a reference to Israel, isn't it? Joseph's dream in Genesis 37. Jacob is the sun, Rachel is the moon, the 12 tribes of Israel are the stars, and the woman who is crying out in birth pains is Israel the barren woman who's about to give birth to the Messiah. I think that's a pretty it's a pretty easy one. I think you can people might immediately assume it was Mary, but I think if you put some of those symbols up in front of people, they'd say, "Oh yeah, yeah, I've come across that the 12th. Yeah, okay, that fits." There's some pagan background in there as well, I think, the 12 constellations of the zodiac, especially you've got interestingly Virgo chased by Scorpio in the in the constellations. Augustus and Livia as the sun and the moon, another bit of pagan background from the Roman world, but we're not going to go into that. But that's a pretty clear symbol, I think. Twelve, three to four, a great red dragon. This one's even easier, right? With seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. The the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. So we've got a dragon as the Leviathan or the serpent, um, and obviously we. I presume we're all going to go with, yep, okay, the dragon's the devil. We know that because we're told in a few verses' time anyway. But the dragon is Leviathan the serpent. But there is biblical background behind the ten horns as well. We're going to see why seven heads, ten horns, and seven diadems matters. And it does when we look at the beast. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But for now, it's even worth saying there are ten horns in the tabernacle as well, which is an interesting little... It's like a sort of false priesthood thing going on here. There's four on the two altars, plus the cherubim with horns as well. The dragon is the one who urges false worship. And of course, this is the symbolism not just of Herod to Jesus, but also of Pharaoh to Moses, isn't it? Ready for the, ma- for the woman to give birth, that she might devour the child. So there's a lot of biblical background here. And then you also have plenty of pagan background, which is a little bit clearer here. Where Leto is pregnant by Zeus with the twins, Artemis and Apollo. Python the dragon tries to kill them and then pursues Leto across the world. Apollo eventually kills Python and then set the dragon, pursues Isis and is eventually killed by her son Horus. It's a very developed myth in which what John is brilliantly doing in the best sort of contextual apocalyptic poetry there is, is to fuse that story with the story of Herod and Jesus and Pharaoh and Moses and biblical images of Israel as a woman giving birth and stick them together and say this is what's happening in and through the Christ story. She gave birth to a male child who again, I imagine who we know who that is, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. The woman fled into the wilderness to be nourished for twelve hundred and sixty days and if you 've got the 12 hundred and sixty days from the previous thing, the three and a half years period of tribulation that 's quite clear too. The, the male child is the Messiah. Israel flees Egypt into the wilderness, and there are three and a half years of tribulation that really what 's going on there is that obviously Israel has given birth to Jesus, and he 's the one who 's going to rule the nations but The dragon, having failed to kill Jesus, then sets himself to try and destroy the people of God and chases her, and she has to go into the wilderness where she's going to be kept safe for the period of tribulation in the wilderness during which Israel will both experience testing but also supernatural provision, which is exactly what happens in the wilderness. The great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels with him. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. That is, until this point in the story of Scripture, it would seem that the Satan, the accuser, until the ministry of Jesus, has access to the heavenly court. Which is, what else is he doing there in the book of Job? It's like, who lets Satan in? You know what I mean? There's like somebody, <laughs> there's supposed to be a bouncer around here somewhere saying that guy is the one guy who's definitely not allowed in. But of course, the point is that the accuser is given access in the heavenly court in the context of not just that story, but arguably some of the stories about the prophet Micaiah and the false prophecies, arguably the story of the census. The Satan seems to be able to do stuff, to be able to accuse. But from this point on, because the ministry of Jesus onwards, he never has that power again. The accuser is thrown down until now. He's not like in the heavenly court, worshiping holy, 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 but he is able to, metaphorically speaking, to walk into the court of God and say, I want to go and attack that person. And I want to accuse them and tell them that they're guilty. But at this point, from this point onwards the ministry of Jesus the, the devil is thrown down and there's no accusation allowed ever more because he's no longer got access to God and he's no longer got the right over you because he doesn't have any guilt to throw at you because of what Christ has accomplished. The accuser has access to heaven in the old covenant but not anymore. Satan's the accuser. Of course Zechariah 3 would be another one, isn't it? And Satan is cast down by the preaching of the kingdom, which is why I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven when the gospel starts going out and of course the cross itself. Now you know, the prince of this world is, is bound, he's finished. And there is pagan background there as well, although I think that's probably less, less significant. In, in both the biblical case and the mythological case, the dragon is overcome by the male child that it's trying to kill. That's how the myth in pagan mythology works, but it's also what happens in, in Jesus. And then him having been thrown down to the earth, he then goes, right, now we've got to kill the people who are there. He's furious because he's not allowed to accuse anymore, so he's going to chase and try and destroy the people of God. The woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly into the wilderness, which is very Exodus-y, isn't it? Of course, in the Exodus story, God says, I have carried you out on wings like eagles and kept you safe in the wilderness. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. That's the Red Sea, isn't it? That's, this is gonna, I'm gonna get them. The people are just coming out. They're just where I want them. Here comes a flood to wash them away. Israel going, no, 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 no. And then the voice of God opens the river, through Israel, walks on dry land. And of course, Satan gets hoisted by his own petard, that his cronies, Pharaoh and the army, are thrown into the sea. Chariots get stuck in the mud. So they've got the Exodus, the Red Sea crossing, and Egypt as Leviathan, the dragon, which is a picture that comes in through in Isaiah 27. Rescue on eagle's wings. And interestingly, the woman in Zechariah 5, this is one of the weirdest passages in the Bible. If it wasn't Revelation 9, there's got to be somewhere in Zechariah, isn't it? You know, I just... Some of you know Dave Devenish. I just think he did a a preach on Zechariah years ago at Stony Bible Week, which said Zechariah is. I won't do the Dave voice, but you know, it it, it comes out naturally. No, 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 I won't because I need to take strepsils for three days. Um, But if you don't know Dave Devenish, yeah, if you ever did, you'd know why. Um, But he he was doing this thing where he's preaching on Zechariah and saying. Um, he's the kind of guy that when he comes to the microphone to bring a prophetic word you really you hope that there's no visitors it's like a really kind of Kerball guy and David's just imagining Zechariah coming and saying behold I see before me a giant book 30 feet long and 10 feet wide behold I was in the spirit and I saw a woman in a basket and he is like the whole book is like that isn't it it's like stalks everywhere baskets lids it is very very I mean even for the Jewish prophets it's pretty out there and this is one of those stories, and I think it's really fascinating what happens. That there is this woman whose name we eventually discover is Iniquity, that Zechariah pictures being flown away by storks in a basket and left in Shinar, which is the site of Babylon in the Old Testament. There is a woman who's taken iniquity, in a sense, or wickedness, is taken, a woman representing wickedness is taken out of the land of Israel and flown over to Babylon and left in the wilderness. And it is very significant, I think, or could be very significant, that we do then meet a woman in a few chapters' time who is representing wickedness, who is sitting out there in the middle of the wilderness, who is Babylon. In other words, that the, 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 and this is the connection that you then you go, am I supposed to make that link? That actually we have a woman who has effectively been taken away by God from the land of Israel into the wilderness in order to be protected, but when we see her next... She has changed her clothes and has become the harlot. Is that what's going on? Now, obviously, if you don't think it's got anything to do with Jerusalem, you're going to say, no, of course not. But it's worth thinking through, if it might be, if you know that the city where the Lord was crucified is the great city that's... About. I just think that connection is really fascinating, that that's where we, and that is literally where we meet her next. There's a wilderness, and that's where she is. You can see a sea of... Green. If you're listening to this online, you will just see 120 blank faces, which people are going, I don't know what I think about that. Well, let's see. Okay, but that's the woman and the dragon. And in some ways, I think, actually narratively simple in the context of apocalyptic writing. Once you've got your head around how the literature works, it's fine. As I say, if you read it out of nowhere for people, it will sound very odd. But anybody... Am I, over, am I overdoing the simplicity of that? Anybody got any questions where they want to go, what? I don't get that at all. Mm. Uh, the last time did an uh, uh, evening like, the stars and how yeah. the, um, John is using yeah. but yes, uh, why, has he, why has he done Yes. Yeah, so, is this a common thing in the Bible where the Bible picks up on pagan mythology or symbolism or stories and then reinterprets or appropriates them in order to make a different point than the original? And is that an argument against the Bible or Christianity? I, think it, I don't think it ever happens with these myths anywhere else that I know of. Um, but I think it's really quite common in the ancient world. So I think, so a really good, a really kind of clear example, I think, is that when Jesus tells the story about the master who goes away to a foreign country in order to negotiate over who's going to have control over the country, that that's based on what had already happened when the the Jewish rulers had gone to the Romans and said, hey, would you support me in my bid to become the sole leader of the country? And Pompey, the Roman general in the, whatever, contemporary of Julius Caesar's, had said, well, this sounds like a bit of a mess because they're both asking for help, and they're both, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take both of them out and we'll occupy Judea. So the story about the king who goes away on a long foreign journey in order to stake his claim to the throne of his country is a very familiar story from history that they would use. And Jesus is using it as a, a, a narrative shape that people would know. And I think that's what he's doing. I don't think that's a strike against Christianity at all unless every idea in the Bible has to be original. But I don't think, I think... I was going to say, any of them are. There are clearly a lot of things in the Bible that are original, but almost all of them are so contextual as to be very clear to the people then. And I think you have the same thing with flood stories. In fact, when I teach the floods, one of my favourite things to do is to go through the other, the main other flood epic, and draw the comparisons and say, is it, "I did it." On, if you were here for the Genesis one, I did it there. I think it's just isn't it brilliant that the the gods of the nations, when the story of the flood is told, are saying all oh, the. It was just a bit noisy for the gods, so they thought human beings are getting too populous, so we'd better try and get them to quieten down and send a flood to kill them. But then they made a pig's ear of it, and somebody rescued someone, and then the gods had a squabble about it. And then eventually they agreed on other methods of keeping the noise down. And I tell that story just so people can see, look how transcendent and sovereign the God of the Bible is, that he's the one who says, no, 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 this is because of wickedness, and I don't have to do it in negotiation with other gods. I can just speak, and it happened. And I think that often what the Bible's doing is, reinterpreting, deliberately riffing off I don't think quite piggybacking is the right word but riffing off and exploiting the myths of the world and saying look what it looks like when instead of reading that through a pagan lens you read it through the lens of a transcendent sovereign and good God you'll have a totally different view of all of the myths of the world Christianity in that sense is the true story and every story in some way is piggybacking off the essential nature of the narrative that God has put into the world and that's why romances are gripping in the way that they are, because the whole of history is a romance. So that's why victory stories or battle stories are gripping, because that's what God has made the world to be. And so, in a way, I think this, that account of it has got it that you, you know people raise as a critique. I think is almost the wrong way around. I think every Shakespeare story, every Homer, are subversive or back to front tellings of a fundamentally Christian story. And the gospel sets us straight on it. And that's now obviously, as someone who's not a believer, is not going to believe that. But I think it's a lot of interesting work to be done on comparing literature, mythology, and the gospel, and saying, "Look how this subverts and undermines the claim, the pagan claims of that." That's a longer answer than you wanted, I'm sure, you, Sorry, but um, yeah, Howie. Uh, I'm interested in your bracket. There is Miltonic no fall of Satan. I have never read Milton's Paradise Lost, so I'd just like to unpack that. Um, basically, John Milton sees there as being a, f- and so do a lot of Christians, that there is a fall of satan prior to the garden of eden story though basically the narrative goes satan was a, an angel he was jealous of jesus as a result he got thrown out of heaven and before the bible starts and that may or may not be associated with you know the age of the earth and that something some readings it is and then he pops up in the garden as a as a snake because he's been thrown out of heaven and while I can see where that comes from, I think it's mainly piecing together some very elusive references in Isaiah 13 and 14 and Ezekiel 27 and 28. And I don't think, it's, I don't think those texts, when read that way, actually do mean those things, although there clearly is a pride problem. But I just don't think the Bible ever goes there. Or like, well, how did the devil get to be like the devil? The Bible just doesn't give us that. And when it says this is when Satan was thrown down, it's pretty explicit that the throwing down of Satan from heaven takes place with the ministry of Jesus, not at the very beginning of time before the garden. That's how I'm. That's the point I'm making, and I think we got it from Milton in the end. Um, although I'm not sure where he got it. I never looked. Hey Lee, how does the time fit from Job to here? Yeah, I think Job, in effect, is. It, so if you just look at history, like the history of the devil, right. The devil's history is, we don't really know where he comes from or how he comes about, although we could might make some guesses and some inferences, but he, is, he functions as the accuser in the heavenly court throughout the Old Testament. And quite why he's allowed to be there and why God doesn't throw him down earlier, don't know. I, I, I ask that question too. But that effectively he's got access to the heavenly court, but then Jesus comes, the gospel is preached, the kingdom comes, the cross and resurrection, the accuser is hurled down, and no longer is he allowed to do that. An accusation from that point on is simply lie rather than accusation. There's some teeth to the accusations until that stage, but now you're covered by the blood of Jesus, so how, what possible accusation could there be? And you don't have access to God's court to accuse, it, accuse people into God either. So I think that's, that's the, the, the satanic fall happens in and through Christ rather than before the Garden of Eden, at least as I understand the history of the devil, which is not something you want to Give a lot of time to, yeah. Um, can you, um, elaborate on that yes, okay. So that's two questions, really, isn't it? Phil, let's you know, <laughs> bundled up together. Okay. So the questions are. So first question is: How does the fall of Satan here relate to the the star that falls down, the star of Wormwood? Um, and I think there there is a difference, I think, between a, a vision of a star coming down to earth and poisoning the waters in the midst of the first century, which is, I think, what's going on in that vision, and the throwing down of the devil, the, so his accusation is no longer allowed. Having said which, the timescales are the same anyway, in the sense that both of them, in a preterist reading, are happening in the period immediately surrounding and after the resurrection of Jesus anyway. Yeah, so there's overlap. Um, the other question was, who, what happened? What's the type, deal with the woman in the preterist reading? Um, and I think it de- again that slightly depends on whether. How far back was it? I don't want to get myself in a tangle here. Yeah, Our, what, you remember on the on this page we looked through the issue of the the extent to which the, the three and a half years of tribulation would we map that onto the whole of church history, or in fact the whole of redemptive history, or to the more intensive three and a half year period under Nero? And I think if you go for the period under Nero, then the time times and a half a time is somewhere in the mid sixties, and the woman is being preserved during that time. But if you read it with the whole of church history in mind, which a tend to, then it, it spans broader than that. And that, is she, is she yeah, I think I think on I think, think you read the woman as Israel who. But but and then effectively, you see, you, you, because I think in the, towards the end of chapter 12, you end up with a strange clarification being brought, which is the devil then meant to make war on the rest of her offspring, those who keep the commands of Jesus. Which implies that there is a distinction being made by John in that picture between the woman and the offspring of the woman. Therefore, is the woman almost referring not to Israel in her full both-testament sense, but to Israel in the narrower sense of the people of God who gave birth to Christ, but then her offspring are believing Jews and Gentiles. And on that reading, of course, the woman might well be the woman who goes into a basket and gets sent off to Shinar and then reappears in chapter 17 with eye makeup. Um, Again, not that there's anything wrong with eye makeup, but, you know, that's what she does. So, but that's more of a stretch, and we're not going to see, you know, we won't buy that until we get there, perhaps. Yeah. Um, do any commentators argue that women, uh, the woman in Revelation 12 is the church I'm sure they would I can't I, I, this is one of those things where you, you read a lot of books and you can't remember quite who says what about something that you think is obvious I think in a sense it is the church of course in the sense that I think Israel and the church considered theologically are the same thing at least in the sense of the people but the church the assembly the ecclesia of the Old Testament anyway so it is in that sense it is the church I I, find, I would find it very strange if somebody said that it referred to the post-incarnation and resurrection church, because how on earth does the church give birth to Jesus? Would, be the, that would I just don't know how you'd ever argue that, but there might be people who would say church is a better word for the people of God through history than Israel is. There, I'm sure I bet there's somebody who said that somewhere, but I don't know who or, or why. Okay, let's crack on and talk about beasts. Uh, there'll be, there will be more, more questions as they come. Right, this graphic is made by someone with too much free time, um, but I'm actually very grateful. I think it's really great. I love this graphic. I think it's really clever. Um, because what someone has done is to find a way of artistically representing the beast with seven heads and ten horns in a way that correctly places the horns on the heads. Now, when I was taught, I was taught revelation by a man called John Hosier, who's known to some of us, maybe many of us, and I remember him making a comment to the effect of, there are seven heads and ten horns. Clearly, the horns are not evenly distributed on the heads. Otherwise, there'd be 1.3 horns per head. And John, of course, thought this was hilarious and bizarre. And it wasn't until, it's not until you go back to Daniel 7, you go, well, that doesn't, that's not the deal at all. There are ten horns on one of the heads, and you know that. And the reason you know it is because when you go back to Daniel 7, you have exactly this same group of creatures. So in, we'll, read, we'll check it from verse 2 up here. I saw a beast rising out of the sea. Oh, actually, no, we haven't read it yet. Okay, let's read it. That will solve some problems for us, okay? Revelation 13. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's and its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast." Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. An authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on earth will worship it. Everyone whose name hasn't been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone's to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone's to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. And I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it's allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who wouldn't worship the image of the beast to be slain. Also it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And this, obviously, lots of people, when they get into Revelation, want to go here. So we will. But I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads. The beast I saw was like a leopard, its feet were like a bear's, and its mouth was like a lion. That is straight out of Daniel 7. Yeah? there in Daniel 7 there's the sequence of four beasts you have a lion you have a bear you have a four-headed leopard and you have a terrifying creature with ten horns that's extremely powerful now you read Daniel those are the four beasts that we are introduced to as the son of man approaches the ancient of days and receives the kingdom which we know is going to be the backdrop to this book because we read it right back in chapter one so it's I think it's really obvious that this is basically a, just a compound of all four of those beasts, and those four beasts represent the worldly empires ranged against the people of God. Again, unless you're Peter Lightheart, in which case you think they're there to protect the people of God, but I do not think that. Um, and so you have the lion-like beast, who in originally would be Babylon. You have the bear, who would be Persia or Medo-Persia, some would say, leaning over on one side. You have the four-headed leopard, which is the kingdom of the Greek kingdom of Alexander the Great, that splits into four which of course the empire of alexander does into the you know four different which is another example for here of appropriating a well-known you know historical story and then changing its meaning completely with the symbols and then you have the fourth beast which is terrifying and exceedingly powerful which corresponds to the feet mixed with iron and clay of the four statue in daniel as well so daniel has these two huge visions of empire one of them uses a statue gold silver bronze iron the other one uses beasts Going lion, bear, leopard with four heads, ten-horned thing. And both of them mean the same, same sequence. And generally, most Christian interpreters have just shown well, that's Babylon, Persia, Greece with its four heads, and Rome. And that's what I think too. So that beast is an amalgamation of worldly empire and its attempt to destroy the people of God. And the ten horns are all on one head. It's not 1.3 horns per head or anything like that. So the beast is a terrifying hybrid of the four beasts in Daniel 7. Added together, of course, those have seven heads and ten horns, and this bestial kingdom represents all worldly empires rolled into one. And if we get the two images in Daniel together, the statue and the beasts we get one image with four empires. The dragon that we know about stands on the beach between the land, Israel, and the sea, which is... the. Top, you know, sort of in the topography of Israel, Israel is the land and then the Gentiles might be over the sea and in the language of prophets like Isaiah, that's a, a big thing. You know, we've got, the gospel's going to go across to the islands and away at, across the oceans. And that's, I think, so when the dragon stands on the shore of the sea, he's got a foot on the land and a foot in the sea and now we've got a beast that's going to come out of the sea and a beast that's going to come out of the land. And I think you've got a beast that's going to come out of the Gentile world and a beast that's come out of the Jewish world and they're going to come together to attack the church, I think is what's happening here. Although that takes a bit more time to... Make the case. Chris? Yeah. yeah. No. Um, no, I, I think, in a sense, the, the language of the sea, I think it means there will be no more chaotic rebellion against God. And, of course, Gentiles, even the word Gentiles changes its meaning, doesn't it? So the, the nations in some Old Testament texts are the people who don't believe in God. In some Old Testament texts, they are the people who don't now but will believe in God when the Messiah reaches them. And in the New Testament, they make up the majority of some churches, and as they make up, I'm sure, the vast majority of this room as well. So I don't think it's saying there won't be any more Gentiles in the sense we have now, but there won't be any more Gentiles in the sense the nations who don't know God. In that sense, there won't be. But I don't think that's what... The C doesn't mean Gentiles If like whenever it comes up. Uh, I think C in Revelation is more actually to do with the forces of... turbulent forces of creation in rebellion against God, which obviously does include gentile nations at this point in history Um, and that's back to jonah getting on a boat and going across the sea and falling into a storm because you know and, and and paul even getting on a boat and saying i'm going to go to the nations and we're going to spend a lot of time following my journey around the mediterranean i think it's a it's a big theme but i don't think we should read the abolition of the gentiles into revelation 21 if that's what you mean beasts in the bible of course are animals which kill humans metaphorically those who attack christians so you have you know, there are animals that humans can tame and animals that humans can't tame and that tend to eat us. And the first you call livestock and the second you call beasts. That's what a beast is. So you wouldn't call a... I don't think the Jews would ever call a cow a beast. Beast doesn't mean an animal. It means the kind of animal that might attack a human. As opposed to the kind of animal that we have domesticated or have clearly exercised our authority over. There's a wildness and an untameness to the, what, that which is bestial. And hybrid beasts, in many myths actually, result from bestiality, right? So minotaurs, griffins, those sorts of creatures in mythology result with the sort of intercourse between two different animal species that produced a hybrid beast. Obviously, it doesn't actually happen that way, but that's the way that mythology often works. And there's a sense here in which, in Ezekiel 16, the bestiality of Israel, which of course is horribly described in Ezekiel 16 and very, in the most... um, yeah, the most sexually explicit passage in the Bible, Ezekiel 16, um, discri- that the, the bestiality Israel commits with beasts produces monstrosities, um, which we meet in Daniel chapter 7, among other places. It's not to say that the beasts are all Israel's fault or anything like that. It's to say that that's how the prophets apply the language of bestiality to apply to beastliness in the world and in empire. The, some of you are going to be rummaging through Ezekiel 16 in the course of this next few verses, I can tell in um, the next few minutes. The beast is worshipped who is like the beast. That's what they cry, which is a parody of how many people in this room are called Michael? Anybody? No one in this room. Mike Taylor! Yes, right? Taylor means who is like God, and he makes clothes. Um, but Michael means at least who is like God, Michael. And this is a parody that is not who is like God, this is who is like the beast. This is like the, the demonic answer to the question Michael. It's who is like God? Who is like the beast? And that's what the people say the beast blasphemes for three and a half years. It makes war on the saints. But the focus of the threat is mainly idolatrous rather than military. Yeah, There is some military attack as well. It's main, but it's not mainly we'll kill you. It's mainly we will do everything we can to lead you astray and get you to worship someone who is not God. Humanity is then divided into those who worship the beast and those whose names are in the book. And as we've said, the Neronian persecution did last three and a half years during which Tacitus at least tells us that Christians were torn, out, torn by dogs while dressed as wild beasts. And that's how Tacitus, Tacitus didn't like Nero so he didn't whitewash him in any way, made him sound like a completely terrible person but it sounds like he was a completely terrible person and this is one of the things he did. So there is something even bestial about the way in which Rome attacked and savaged the church in the 60s. Again, the actual 60s, not the 1960s. So you have a beast rising out of the sea, which is a hybrid of all of the beasts of Daniel 7, worldly empire, trying to destroy the church. But that's a Gentile power. And then, of course, we meet the beast coming out of the land. And don't worry, the barcode at the top is just me being amusing, just well, maybe not being amusing, just kind of feeling like a little random graphic needs to be thrown in there. Don't worry. Um, but again, we've got a you know, strong parallel here. You know, And I saw, and I saw... I saw a beast rising out of the land, two horns, like a lamb. So this is a parody of Christ, a parody of the sacrificial system, a parody of the good gifts of God in giving the lamb, not a parody of the empires of Daniel 7. This is a different kind of beast. And so, again, I think this is a sort of effectively a land beast, a Jewish beast, rather than a Gentile beast. And I think it symbolizes the fusion of religious and state power, as you see in the book of Acts and in the Gospels, in the persecution of the church. Spoke like a dragon. He has the authority of the sea beast, and it makes the earth worship the beast whose mortal wound had been healed. Earth gets deceived by his miracles. People obviously, so the, the land beast is there to get people to worship the sea beast. That's the job. Um uh, so people worship the first beast. The land beast is allowed to work signs, tells people to make an image, kills those who don't worship it. Everyone on earth has to have a mark in order to buy or sell. And that calls for wisdom. So there is a sense in which this is the false church, and a sense in which this is a land or Jewish beast, Herodian Israel, or the leadership of Israel at the time, I think. And this, whereas this is Neronian Rome and a false Christ. And the two together, the sense of state power and religious power, in their day, Rome and Israel's leadership, but in every generation, you have the same fusion. You have the same thing in. Trump's America. You have the same thing in Wahhabist Islam. You have the same thing all over the place, right? An alliance between state power and idolatrous religious power fusing together to attack the true church. And that's been behind almost all of the evils that have ever been perpetrated on the church. Definitely silence again there. Um, The land beast causes people to make and then worship an image of the sea beast and the mark of the beast is then put on the right hand or the forehead. Obviously, the right hand and the forehead are the places where you are supposed to write the Torah. And you're also supposed to have a mark above your home in the Exodus. So there is a parody here of the way in which the true people of God are to be known. In the Torah, the people of God are to be known because they have a mark above their home and they have a mark written on their forehead and on their head, which is the word of God. But in this age, you have the opposite happening, which is the way that the, the mark of the people who are not true believers are going to be known is by having a mark over their lives, their foreheads, and their, their, their wrists. And no one can buy or sell without it. Now, does the, perhaps the combination of worship, buying, and selling, does it help us? Because of all the references to the connection at the temple between worship and buying and selling. This is going into sort of, gosh, we don't know here kind of territory, I'm not sure. But are we, are we exploring a connection between idolatrous worship and Jesus' judgment of the temple for its worship, buying, and selling? Are we, if, the, if the land beast is relating to Israel in support of Rome, his number is 666. Is it, sorry, just to go back. The Herodian temple, in some ways, is an idolatrous state religion project on, on Herod's behalf. Doesn't mean you can't worship God faithfully there. The early church did, right? They still, you know, Paul does. They'd, they church, early church meet in the temple, but the but that temple was established with a view to self-aggrandizement for the one who would be king of the Jews, who had to kill the baby boys in Bethlehem. You know, his number is six six six, and this is the number of the sea beast, not the number of the land beast. Right, the land beast doesn't have a number; the sea beast has a number and a mark. And I I'm pretty sure that the the answer there is that's Nero, um, and I think and so many interpreters go with Nero, even, no matter what sort of dating they give to the book that I feel on fairly safe ground there, although obviously there have been plenty of other candidates, um, popes and emperors and various, but I think the primary reference is Nero. The reason for that is in Gematria, the game, some of you would have heard this before, but you know that there's a game, it doesn't sound like a great game to you probably, but if you have a language, imagine like the Roman alphabet, which we probably know because of it's the same, same alphabet we use, but it has Roman numerals, yeah? a V and a 5 are the same. Yeah, or a one and an I are the same. To be honest, we still do it with number plates on cars. You, you often get people make little... In fact, my dad has one. You know, you, you have a little joke on your number plate, which is a sort of nickname for you, written in a mixture of numbers and letters. And we get that because we use it. Well, in their language, the same is true of the way they use letters have numerical value. So if you spell out Nero Caesar, like, in, like, it, like it does there, N-R-W-N, that W is an, is an omega, Right? QSR, it adds up to 666. Now, that on its own doesn't settle it, because you could say, well, someone's tried to rope around for somebody, but we've met Nero a few times already, and you'd see he's not a far fl- uh, far-flung candidate. But if you add up all those letters, you, it adds up to 666. But the kicker for me, the one that really helps, is the footnote in your Bible. I feel some confidence in saying, it depends what Bible you use, but amusingly enough, in the ESV Bible I have here, it says... Uh, Revelation 13.18 says let's calculate the number of the beast for it's the number of a man and his number is 666 six, six, full stop and then there's a little six in the top, which I just think that's wonderful that the, there is a, even a satanic Bible translation that's drawing that point out but you have probably got how many, how many of us have got footnotes in our Bibles on that verse in Revelation 13.18? Yeah? Okay, and quite a few of us and I, I presume it says something to the effect of some early manuscripts have 616 Right? And the reason for that, I think, and this is one of the things that tips me quite strongly into the Nero camp you know what I mean, I'm not a Nero fan particularly, is that if you take out the second N, which you would if you were changing the case and saying he's not, you know, if you use it in the accusative, he is Neroen Kaisar, but if you use it in the nominative and just say Nero Caesar, it would be spelled Nero Kaisar, which is how we might expect to spell it. If you take off the second N, as you could imagine somebody would, you remove 50 from the overall score and it turns into 616. And so I think it's very likely that the reason why you have that wrong manuscript early on in the tradition is that somebody said, these idiots have done their maths wrong. Nero Caesar doesn't make 666, it makes 616. Let's correct it. And somebody else has been presumably gone no, 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 because it was in the accusative case and that's why it had an N at the end. Again, make of that what you will. I think that's, to me, that's compelling. But that's the kind of thing I get excited about. Um, why do you use Gematria at all? Why play that game at all? Why doesn't John just say, this is Nero? Why not come clean? Well, partly there's a let the reader understand, you know, let's be a little bit cryptic and elusive to people who might come and kill us sort of deal, I expect. Um, but there are a number of reasons George Caird gives in his work on Revelation to suggest why this may have happened. Six falls one short of seven. So there is a... He does, in the, in, and obviously I know I'm... <laughs> numerically I'm on safe ground there right but I'm not therefore saying oh well seven is perfect six is fallen but I am saying six is man's number because six is the day on which man is created and so if instead of exalting the god of the day seven you exalt the man of day six you would end up with a 666 and there's a numerical play there that is almost saying can you see how near it is Nero is like the embodiment of what happens when man tries to rule it all goes horribly wrong so I think that's one reason it's also two thirds of a thousand, because a third have been destroyed by the trumpet plagues. So is that that might, that might be another reason why the number would appeal to John to think oh, that's a good way of clarifying that number. It's also a triangular number. You know, a triangular number is like a square number, but different. Instead of being thirty-six times thirty-six, it's thirty-five plus thirty-six plus thirty-five plus thirty-four, and down like that. In, and it's a triangular number in contrast to the square numbers that you find in the rest of the book, one hundred and forty-four thousand or whatever. And also in the Old Testament, the number 666 only appears in one place. It appears in association, I say one place, two places, but one person in association with Solomon. I don't know if you've ever done this when you've been reading through your, in your devotions and you come across the number 666 in in Kings and you think, oh, that's an interesting number, wonder what that's got to do with it. Yeah, well, probably nothing because it just got, had to weigh something and it happened to be that. But I think there's, I think even there, there's more to it than that. Solomon is the example par excellence of what happens when a king gradually dethrones God and pursues for himself wealth, weapons, and women, or guns, girls, and gold, or any kind of variant of the kinds of things that people run after when they're overpowered kings. And in a sense, therefore, it would be a nice allusion, I think, for John to say, there is a hint back here to what we've seen before, which is what happens when kings get too big for their boots and commit idolatry. And for any number of those reasons, or none of them, just because John, l- John likes numerical games, and who doesn't, I think there might, that, that might be why he's gone for 666. Did you raise your hand, John, as if to say, I don't like numerical games? Okay, that's great. I'm glad you felt that that was your first public contribution in the setting. I think that's a, an important point that needed to be made, so thank you. Um, sorry, we're old friends, and if we weren't, I wouldn't get away with it. Um, so the question, of course, how preterist or idealist do you want to be? I want to have my cake and eat it. I want to say I think this is Nero, but bestial, worldly empires in a, in alliance with religious power, often purportedly Christian religious power, by the way. So let's not again pin this all on the Jews. This is like this has been true in our society far more of Christians than of anyone else. But that religious power in support of idolatrous state power is usually the biggest threat there is to the true church. But I do think they would have read it and thought this is Nero, and I think it is but it also refers to any number of other candidates for that office that we might go through through history. Right. Beasts, numbers, marks, and so on. Discuss. What do you think? And do you have any questions or clarifications? How, many, how persuaded are you? How many questions do you have to follow up? Or do you just want to talk about something else to free your mind from the symbolic weird world of Revelation for a moment? Okay. So... That's good. Some animated, energetic discussion. What I'm going to do, if it's okay, is move into chapter 14 and try and do that well. And then we'll make space for questions following up what we've just been talking about in a few minutes, if we can. Because um, I want to get to the end of chapter 16 by the end of today, so that we're all set for tomorrow. Revelation chapter 14. Now, just to, by the way, just to introduce, I think if I put this page up, To jump to cut to the end of chapter 14, I think we have what Revelation 13 shows us from Earth's perspective, Revelation 14 shows us from Heaven's perspective. So from the point of view of Revelation 13, the true church is being, you know, killed and forced to worship idolatry or you know, it basically prevented from trading trading. Encouraged or seduced into idolatrous worship and killed, from the point of view of Revelation 14, those who are killed are actually being redeemed and given rest and refreshment and harvested uh, with a view to God's good purposes and his judgment on the earth, which will follow. So, Revelation 14 provides a counterpoint from Reve- to Revelation 13, saying this is what it looks like from heaven as opposed to if you look like it from earth. This is what Revelation 14 says. Then I looked. And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads, and I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who'd been redeemed from the earth. It's these who haven't defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It's these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who has made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water." And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night, these worshippers of the beast in its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. Then I looked and behold a white cloud. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So I think you have three main visions and images here in chapter 14 that present us with a very different perspective of the martyrdom of the church. So chapter 13, the beast is going to try and get you. Chapter 14, yeah, but when you die, it will be seen from heaven's perspective as a moment of redemption and rest and reaping, which is nicely alliterative, but those are the three things that are going on. There is the vision of the lamb on Mount Zion, and we know he's been slain. So we're, we already know. And Every time you see a lamb, of course, you go, well, he's been slain and, is, and lives. Behold, I died and now I'm alive forever. So that's encouraging for the people of God. Um, and the martyrs are singing a new song, and all nations are commanded to worship him. Obviously, I think the symbolism about being virgins is, is, is that, is symbolic. I don't think it means that only single people are going to be redeemed or anything remotely like that. I, I think... Um, although Paul does say singleness is even better um, I don't think that's the point that's being made here I think it's the idea of being set apart and so devoted to God that you are sexually pure and that's then being used as a paradigm of purity to represent the people of God as a whole so yes I do think married people can be saved um, which will be a relief to some um, But there's, so that's the, the first vision there is the idea that you, they are the redeemed and they've been given a new song that no one else is allowed to sing the angels don't sing it the angels haven't been redeemed but we have the redeemed have, and so they sing the song of redemption. The central vision has the messages of the three angels, um, which actually, in a sense, describe you know, the, the fall of Babylon's announced, and a warning is w- issued to anyone who worships the beast. And then we get the same call for perseverance we had in chapter 30. So you see the parallels here, almost identical phrasing. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints. So when I preached this text, I put chapters 13 and 14 together and called it a, pull, a call to perseverance. I said both of these texts are doing the same thing. They're describing what it is for the people of God to suffer and to be persecuted and martyred. But one of them is doing it from heaven's perspective, the other one's doing it from earth's perspective. The other way around, earth first, then heaven. And earth, the, 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 chapter 13 is really saying this is why you need to persevere. And chapter 14 is saying, and this is why you can. Because you know that this is the future hope that you have. And having done that and talked about the language of rest, in a, there's a, a beautiful text, blessed indeed says the Spirit that they may rest from their labours for their deeds follow them. That is a lovely way of describing a martyr's life or a life well lived in faith. Blessed are you because you know we, we still write RIP, you know, rest in peace. I can now rest in peace because I have done my labour I have in the Lord, my labor was not in vain and my deeds are going to follow me. The good things I've done, which by the the Spirit empowered, so it's not legalism here, but the gracious good deeds I've done by the Spirit are going to follow me and I can now rest and I don't have to fight anymore. And that's, from one perspective, a Christian view of how to approach death. It's not the only thing to be said. Death is also the last enemy uh, that we celebrate. So I'm not saying death is a good, but this is what it is to have died in Christ from now on, according to... Revelation 14, 13. And then from there, neither of those I'm going to spend a huge amount of time on, but from there we get to the harvest of the earth, which is where Jesus takes a sickle and harvests the wheat harvest, and then an angel takes a sickle and reaps the grape harvest, which is thrown into the winepress and turned into wine, which, as you'll see in chapter 16, is then actually going to be poured out as wrath over the nations of the world. Now, if we know Daniel seven, when as soon as we meet beasts, we're expecting to meet the Son of Man who's going to conquer them, and here he is, and he's surrounded by martyrs singing, which is pretty close to what happens in Daniel seven. So that's what we'd expect. Chapter the call to perseverance is the same between the two, but the harvest of the earth is a bit more fiddly because it's a bit strange when you read through the idea. Let's say, so my my view of this is that both the wheat and the grapes represent the church. But that means you're in this strange position where you end up saying that the, the people of God or the martyrs are thrown into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And for most people, they say, well, that's obvious, that's just stupid, Then Wilson's an idiot, and so is all who sail in her. Um, but... But the point being that, the, of course, the people of God, when they are... The wine press is not a place where you judge grapes. Wine press is a place where you turn grapes into wine that then produce the red juice that you then pour out over the world. So in a sense, the fact that the blood of the martyrs is effectively a thing by which God then judges the world is evidence that the church is turned into wine, If in the wine of the wrath of God in the wine press. Right? So when you put grapes into a wine press and then tread it, you're not judging the grapes... That's not how it works at all, is it? You're turning the grapes into something which itself is then going to be put into a bowl and poured out over the world in chapter 16. So I think we have a double harvest in chapter 14. right? I'll, I'll, I'll go a bit slower for a second. So verse four, Revelation 14, verse 14. I looked and behold a white cloud, on the cloud one like a son of man. He's got a sickle in his hand. Another angel says, put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come. That is if, and, and so that's what he does. Swings his sickle across the earth, the earth is reaps. That is saying no more really than what we know from Matthew 13, or a passage where Jesus describes the harvest and says this is what will happen at the end. Son of man will put in his harvest, uh, put in his sickle, and we will reap the harvest, and effectively will then sift the wheat from the chaff. I think that's pretty and that's a pretty easy symbol. We would regard evangelism as you know, seeing wheat grow in the fields which are white for harvest and so on. I think that's, this is talking about the martyrs are being taken from the earth up to heaven as a result of the judging work of Son of Man saying, you guys are on my team and I'm going to reap you and take you to myself. That's fine, I, I, I hope. But I think the same thing's happening with the grape harvest. But in the grape harvest, instead of it simply saying the wheat is taken to heaven... The sickle comes in, same deal, gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, its grapes are ripe, so we've got a ripe harvest being reaped. But then the grapes, that is the martyrs, as I understand it, are being put in the wine press and trodden by the Lord God, as if to say, I am turning the fact that you guys have all been killed as a thing by which I am going to judge the nations of the world in a moment. That you are being turned from beautiful lush grapes into wine which is now going to be the wine of the wrath of God and is going to be it's because you have given your blood for me that I'm going to judge the nations who have killed you that's the association I see there now a number of interpreters would say no I think the harvest of the grapes is a harvest of judgment and is in contrast to the harvest of the weeds and it could go either way you make up your own mind for me I like the fact you know, among many other things here. But I like the fact that the harvest comes in and it's wheat and grapes which get turned into bread and wine. And I find a sort of sacramental significance of the fact that both of them are good rather than one's good and one's bad. Um, but that on its own doesn't mean that I'm right about its meaning. I just think that it, it is. And it's interesting to me that in chapter 18 and verse 24, when the city, might be Jerusalem, might be Rome, whatever, but when the city is finally judged, it is covered in the blood of the saints which the bowls of wrath have been poured out over us, or over it, hopefully not over us, (laughs) over it. So that's why I think that the people of God, the martyrs are actually the grapes as well as the wheat. I could be wrong. Okay. Now, with that and the previous page, any questions or comments on that before we just turn? We're going to read 15 and 16 in one go. Chapter 15 is very short, um, but we do just need to cover off the bowls before we finish the day. Yes, ailed. Sorry, I just like the fact that alid is spelled ailed. It's nice. Um, no, usually wine. The symbolism of wine in the Bible is normally very positive, and it? it's a symbol of hope and new creation and abundance and lushness and vineyards and all that stuff. But obviously, you do have, particularly when wine is poured into a cup and given to a nation. You do get the idea that wine foaming is going to be mixed, and you 're going to be effectively forced to drink the wine of god 's wrath. That is a, an image that you find occasionally in Isaiah, and the idea of drinking the cup actually is probably behind what Jesus says, "Take this cup from me i 'm um, not saying Jesus has got a wine cup in mind particularly, but I think that 's the image so yes this is, I mean it 's obviously explicit here that it is about judgment because he talks about the wine press of the wrath of God, but that isn 't the normal way you 'd use the image normally wine represents abundance and harmony and fruitfulness and so on. Um, so yes, it is. An, in that sense, it's a bit of an innovation. But the image of the nations having to drink a cup, which represents judgment, is a common Old Testament image. So I think they've fused the two together. John. Um, because of the parallel with blood, could there be a link to outside of the city that's yes. in a flowing of blood? Yes. Yes. It does. Does it mention it doesn't mention blood in Hebrews thirteen, does it, or does it? It talks about Why? Jesus' blood, but he's yeah. taken outside of the city and we are saved through shedding of his blood. And then it says let us join him. Yeah. Yeah, I think I would definitely see the connection between the martyrs called to follow Jesus going outside the camp. Yeah. Well the temple, but no, although Hebrews Hebrews is weird though, because although it's written well, it depends when it's written. But it only uses really tabernacle language, doesn't it, rather than temple language. So I don't know whether that's like an intentional parallel or whether it's just a theological parallel that is behind the, the nature of the gospel and the court of martyrdom, which I'm sure is, I think that's right anyway, yeah. Um, Dave? Uh, I was interested in taking a step back by the land peace. Yes. I've not come across the satisfying explanation of the lying wonders that, of the land beast. Yes. Lying, so what do we make of the lying wonders of the land beast? (laughs) Again, another sentence that doesn't very often get said. Um, Yes. um, Do you mean as in what sort of false miracles we're talking about? How do you deal with that? I I think you have to deal with the issue of false miracles from the Sermon on the Mount onwards, don't you? Like Many people are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name and all the rest, and I'm going to say, I never knew you. So the idea of false miracles is is a pretty strong, like very, you know, that's like right in the middle of a gospel tradition that there are going to be people who are going to do it. I even think that sort of, you know, the, the strange story of the sons of Scaver and again, the seven of them as well, aren't there, in Acts. The idea that there are all sorts of, people, of exorcists and miracle, would-be miracle workers doing things that are not representing God. Um, I just think it's a, I, quite exactly what I think that is in practice in Revelation. I, I have no idea. I don't know that we're particularly expected to come up with a, a a tangible thing it represents in history, but I think that phenomenon from the start of the church is pretty common. There's, because effectively the church is being warned, you must not think that somebody working a miracle means that they're speaking for God. Now, you get led astray all over the place. There'll be false messiahs, and they'll do all kinds of things, and even the elect will get fooled. So I think that is a common thread, but I don't think I couldn't pin it on a particular individual at that point, I don't think, unless you've got one in mind. Maybe you're about to... I've not come across a historic record. no. No. Not, not just in one person, but generally. Of false miracles? Or of miracles being worked yeah. without in them? A notable way that would be worth recording. No, I, I don't either. Although it gives me pause when people with miraculous ministries fall particularly if it turns out that they're not just falling because they did something wrong, but they're falling because their entire ministry has been built on a sham, it does make me ask that question. Um, but I'm not saying that's what John is talking about here. I, I really don't know. Tony. I, I may it, but could you the from perspective perspective? Oh, I see. Um, they're not quite, okay? Um, so, good question. You didn't miss it. No. The contrast for me is chapter 13 is saying this is what martyrdom, is, the persecution of the church looks like from the perspective of the earth. Chapter 14 means this is what it's looked like from the perspective of heaven. But I'm not saying that that parallels that and that parallels that. I'm saying that both chapters are in three chunks. They give you the beast from the sea, the call for perseverance, which is the same across the two, and then the beast from the land. And this says the lamb, the call from, and then the harvest. That's the way, that's why I've laid it that way. But no, I don't think there's a particular parallel across the two of those that I've noticed. Okay. Yes, I think in a preterist reading, you're still somewhere between eighty thirty 30 and AD 70, but probably with most of this taking place in the 60s. Yeah. Okay. Chapter 15 and 16. We have 15 minutes to go, so well done. Um, it's been a, it's, it feels like it's hotter now than it was at the start of the day. It's been annoying, but um, it's almost like holding this conference in summer has somehow come back to bite us. But anyway, um, Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, And also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And we'll carry on reading in a minute, but you'll notice that there, the, I'm assuming that the bowls of the wrath of God are bowls which have effectively been filled with, from the winepress. Yeah, Because we've just heard the winepress has been turned into the wrath of God. So that's I'm assuming that they are bowls full of wine. Which is another sort of interesting sacramental connection. Okay. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like a blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments, for they've shed the blood of saints and prophets and you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, just and tr- or true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They didn't repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They didn't repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It's done! And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe." Now imagine by the time we've now been spending a lot of time in this book over the course of today, you're probably seeing the Exodus stuff now, right? Really clearly, aren't you? Water being dried up, river being turned to blood, scorching this, hailstones there, frogs here, boils everywhere. You just realize this is an Exodus concatenation. But it seems weird, at least to me, oh, seems weird that Revelation 15 has reordered the events and the numbers of the Exodus. So in Exodus 7 to 15, you get 10 plagues, victory through the sea, Song of Moses, Sanctuary filled with cloud. Revelation 15, you get victory through the sea, then the Song of Moses, then the sanctuary filled with smoke, and then seven plagues. It's a bit weird. Why have they changed it? But when you look more closely, you actually notice that there are 10 plagues in Revelation which have been split into a three and then a seven. So you get the three plagues or the three woes of chapter 9 followed by the seven that we've just read here, and the Exodus happens in between the two. So the story, the I am, appears to Moses and John, there's promise of justice for Israelite slaves, Christian martyrs. Then there's three plagues upon everybody. Then in the Exodus story, you get seven plagues which don't touch Israel, but they come in later in the church story. Then in Victory Through the Sea, the Song of Moses, the sanctuary filled with smoke. And then in the church story, you get seven plagues which don't touch the church. So again, if you read the Exodus story with that in mind, you think, oh yeah, there's actually only three plagues which hit everyone. The other seven, are we're told, are clarified, only addressed to... The Egyptians. And you get the same three and seven structure at work in Revelation. But it's hard to see it because they're unbundled. So you have three of them and then you get into all sorts of other stuff. And so you've forgotten about those three by the time you find another seven. And then at the end of that, so in the course of that, the seven plagues, of course the seven bowls are poured out. Now previously in Revelation, bowls have represented, they've been filled with incense and gone upwards. The rise to heaven as prayer. Here the bowls are overturned and are poured out on the earth full of judgment. So the bowls are pointing down now rather than up. And the plagues, as we said, obviously full of exodus imagery, boils, river turning to blood, sun, darkness, frogs drying up the river and hail. And in striking all beast worshippers, the bowls are also an escalation of the seals in which only a fourth died and the trumpets in which only a third died. So this is now total judgment. And I think that the pouring out of the bowls and Armageddon, as we're going to look at on the next page, is actually referring to the same reality as the reality described in the fall of Babylon in chapter 17 to 19. But then again, that's a preterist point, and you wouldn't do that if you're a futurist or a, actually even an idealist, I expect. An idealist was really saying this kind of thing happens all the time. God is continually judging people for rejecting him and so on. I think that's probably how you do it. Whereas I think with the more preterist side of me and the way I'm reading it, I'm seeing this as really an escalation in history, probably in the 60s, of the judgment of God that's coming out on specific people who have opposed the church in the course of you know, the empire of Nero and, of course, in Jerusalem as well. So that's the sort of overview. But the bit that gets people most animated is probably Armageddon or Harmageddon. Um, I like throwing this out there. But did you know that the first battle of Armageddon was won with camping equipment? You know that... You seen that? You saw that? I wrote the article. I wrote. It. Okay, sorry. If you'd read that, yeah. So I, I just like it as an idea. The first, the two battles of Armageddon, and the first one was one with camping equipment, because the language of Armageddon, although you wouldn't often, because again, the way we transliterate Hebrew, you wouldn't spot it. But Har Magedon, the hill of Megiddo, the ba- the first battle that took place on the hill of Megiddo in the Bible is the battle between Deborah and Barak and the armies of Sisera, and it's won by JL, the woman driving a tent peg through the skull of the general. And it's just quite interesting to think the first battle of Armageddon is won with a tent peg. It's just a, one of those phrases that makes people go, Ooh! Scooby-Doo noise, um, and I quite like it. So there's, I've just put it on the map so you can see it. Mount Carmel is there, and then Megiddo, where Armageddon takes place, is here. And that's got a number of biblical resonances to it because of the battle of Megiddo. There are several battles in Megiddo in the Old Testament. But with the bowls of wrath being poured out, the stage is set for a battle again between the kings from the rising of the sun, crossing the Euphrates, and the kings of the world, or the kings of the land, inspired by the frog-like spirits of the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. We just met them. And this is, by the way, if you're in sort of scrambling for where we are in the text, so am I. Revelation 16, verses 12 to 16. Right? The bowl gets poured out in the Euphrates, and the kings of the east come over, and there's a battle between the kings of the East and the frog like spirits who have been inspired by the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. Now, that might, again, back to this sort of point about allusions to mythology and so on, that might for them connect with the invasion, the clash which many people in the Roman world lived with. The great threat was the beast from the East. Um, which we still have by the way isn't it when when we get bad weather we find a way of blaming even that on the Russians I don't know if you noticed that last year but there was the beast from the east it's like this weird thing about the, the peril from over in the land of the east it seems to run very deep in Europeans and the same thing happened of course in the ancient world that the Romans were saying we are fine we are going to we're governing the whole world except for the Parthians who might come and get us one day which of course they did um, so, it might be a version that might just tap into that idea. Yeah, over the, These guys are crossing the Euphrates. It's a bit like Hitler is crossing the Channel. It's like they're going to come and get us. We're, they're on, at our door. So, that would probably tap into some things in their world, it doesn't in ours. But it happens at the place that in Hebrew is called Harmageddon, the mountain of Megiddo. Megiddo is where Barak and Deborah beat Sisera, it's where Ahaziah dies, it's where Josiah dies in battle with Pharaoh Necho right before the exile. So Megiddo is the site of the great battle which Judah loses and then gets deported across the Euphrates. Because that's where Josiah dies, right before the exile. So in a way, Megiddo is like a harbinger. Armageddon, the original Armageddon, or that's not the original one now actually, but like the third or fourth one, is a harbinger of what will happen when Israel will go across the Euphrates into exile. And now Armageddon is being used as the battle that will take place when they come back. Or when the Euphrates is crossed again, this time with... a in my reading, a good invasion of the land to to abolish the frog-like demonic spirits. And that makes it a reference point for mourning in Jerusalem at their king being pierced. Um, But Megiddo is uh, is also, incidentally, is a plain, but it's the plain underneath Mount Carmel, which may or may not be significant with the clash between Elijah and the prophets of Baal as well. The showdown between demonic spirits and the people who represent the true God. So there's a lot of links and it's a, bit of a, it's a bit of a muddle because obviously we're not actually told what happens in the battle. And that's what's the weirdest thing about this chapter. For all the, what's the battle mean and what are the symbols? The really weird thing about it is that the battle is, everyone's getting ready and lining up and then nothing happens. It's a total anticlimax. The battle is if implicitly postponed, right? Verse 16... And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And even that word, you can hear Charlton Heston saying it and saying, it has happened before. It will happen again. The only question is when. You think, how on earth has that battle caught our imagination so much that you can still make movies about it today, yet the battle is never described? What on earth is going on there? Like, they assembled, they got ready, they were ready to fight. Oh yeah, and then loads of other stuff happened. Babylon fell, people sang songs about it. And then when we return to the battle scene in chapter 19, there's corpses everywhere. And the birds are feasting on the corpses. And I think the only way of making sense of that narrative shape is to suggest that the, that the battle of Armageddon is the fall of Babylon. That the battle between the armies of God and the demonic spirits that are hosting, occupying the land at this time is the same thing as the fall of Babylon described in chapter 17 and 18. Because otherwise, what on earth is this battle supposed to mean? Or was it just cancelled for some mysterious reason? Did they make peace beforehand? But it doesn't sound like frog-like demonic spirits are making peace with anybody. So I think we are expected to assume that the battle lines are drawn up, and then we reappear three chapters later and see corpses everywhere. I think we're supposed to assume that the thing that happens in between is what the Battle of Armageddon was in practice. Now, this is definitely not going to work if you're not a preterist, and it's not going to work if you don't buy a lot of the other things I'm saying. And, that, and I'm afraid the further into the book you go, the more decisions depend on previous decisions. But I think that's a better way of reading it than there is going to be an end-time battle between the people of God and the enemies of God or whatever it may be because the battle just simply isn't described and it seems to be related, as in my judgment, to the fall of Babylon. So, one or two questions and then we will... Go and have some dinner and, and that sort of thing. So yes, sir. So in this, are we interpreting Babylon as being uh, I'm not. But I well, because I'm interpreting Babylon as being Jerusalem. But I think you could. Oh, sorry. oh yes. Yeah, no, in that case. Yes, I am. Although I don't think that's the only way of reading it. I think in some ways the point about Armageddon not being described and being suspended actually, I mean, I know I'm making quite a lot of the difference between do you read it as Jerusalem or Rome. There's clearly plenty of ways of reading. I might, well become, I might well conclude in 10 years' time or 10 months' time, I'm completely wrong, and Babylon is Rome after all. And even if I did, I think I would probably still say, yeah, but the Battle of Armageddon is enacted in the fall of Babylon as Rome, even, because I just think at a narrative level, I can't work out what else is spo- we're supposed to think has happened here, because the Battle of Armageddon doesn't happen otherwise. I am, yes, yes. Um, John and Emily, and then we'll stop. Yeah, John. So we're talking about the, the, the woes which the angels bring, right? Well, yes, yeah, so a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. And yeah. The before, the yes. No, that is a very good point. It doesn't say that Christians were definitely killed in it. That is true. It doesn't differentiate. And to be fair, neither does the Exodus story. I as far as I know, I don't think it says any Israelites died when the river was turned to blood, for instance. I think it's more that we are specifically clarified. In the, like in the Exodus story and in Revelation, it is clarified that there are three which affect, affect the world and then there are seven which only affect people who aren't in God's people. But you're right, it doesn't actually say there were three that definitely killed God's people as well. I, I accept that, yes. I've, I may have overstated that in the way I've worded it here, actually. And then... I mean. So, related to that, what is the third word? Because it says the third word coming to you, and then it goes to heavenly vision. So, uh, go back to the... Give me the verse, just... Um, Sorry. Well, as in the woe to him. Do you know what? I I actually haven't thought through what is the third woe, because woe to woe to the earth because his time is short is probably the only other place where you get a woe on the earth, isn't it? Yeah. Well, because I think the subsequent woes are limited more to Babylon, aren't they, rather than the world. Whereas I think woe to woe to the earth may only, may, we'll find out, I'm sure. It may, it may be that the only other place where there is a woe pronounced on the earth, not a specific part of the earth, is when the dragon falls to earth. But I actually hadn't, yeah, in chapter 12, I hadn't thought about that. The more, yes, they're marked people. out. Yeah. yeah. Yes, it's strange, isn't it? Because the the third woe is the fifth trumpet and the second woe is the sixth trumpet. You would think the third woe would be the seventh trumpet, but it's not a woe at all. It's a revelation of the temple. So you're right. I think it must I would assume it did refer to chapter 12 and the throwing down of the dragon, but I had not thought about that. And that's a nice way for me to finish today with something I've never thought of on Revelation. So we are going to go and have some dinner in a moment. Thank you very much for being so awake and engaged today. Um, And thank you for that. That was very kind.